We are returning this morning to the book of Hebrews after several weeks away for the holidays and for the transition to a new year. And so we'll be picking up where we left off some four or five weeks ago. But for those who have forgotten or those who need to be reminded or those who are joining us, the book of Hebrews is a sermon letter written by an anonymous author to a Hebrew Christian community where some people in that community who had previously professed faith in Christ were considering abandoning that faith in Christ, perhaps due to persecution, perhaps due to hardship, and they wanted to return to a more comfortable and familiar and a culturally accepted practice of Jewish faith. Simply put, these people who had professed faith in Christ, circumstances in their life had led them to think, you know what, maybe it would be easier to not be a Christian. Maybe to go backwards and be who we used to be. Maybe some of you have been there and felt that way. A little bit of hardship, a little bit of pressure, a little bit of criticism comes into your life. And you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not one of those Christians. And so we can recognize the reality of these kinds of disbelief in our own world. The author has sought to convince those Christians and all of the Christians that Jesus is superior to everything they have ever known in their Hebrew worship. He's superior to the angels, to Moses, to all the prophets, to all the priests of the Old Testament. The author is seeking to convince them that what they have in Jesus is worth persevering in. And that's his call, that they would move on to maturity and persevere in the Christian faith. Otherwise, he says, they risk falling short of the inheritance due to the hardness of their own hearts. And that is his great warning. It is the warning of what is called apostasy, of falling away from the faith, of abandoning Jesus, of leaving the church. That's his primary concern. Now, in chapter 10, where we'll read in just a moment, the author you will hear stresses the necessity of embracing Jesus as the one atoning sacrifice for sin. He is more than empty symbolic shadows of the Old Testament rituals. Jesus, he says, is the actual holy sacrifice who alone can remedy humanity's sin problem. That's his point. How does he put it? And how is that true? Give your attention to God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. A long reading, but a clear point. Listen to the author. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. 
But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, He says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then He adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven... Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Amen? Let's pray that God will help us understand His Word. Lord, would You this morning, would You show us or would You remind us of what is eternally true in Christ Jesus? If we've never heard it before, if we've never understood it before, Lord, may this morning be the first time. And if we've heard it and believed it for years, then Lord, would you refresh us by this gospel truth. That's our prayer and we make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't have to tell you, <clears throat> we all have a lot of problems in this life. Every one of us, we could pull each other aside after church and say, well, let me tell you something. I got this problem, and I got this problem going on right now, and I got this problem. Why, I know a guy who's been quoted around his house um, saying things like this. I've got more problems than I've got fingers and toes. Have you ever said that? It's a good one. You might want to use it. 
I got more problems than I've got fingers and toes. I've got plumbing problems. I've got roof problems. I've got joist problems. I've got septic field problems. I've got septic tank baffle problems. I've got bathroom problems. And as of last week, I have termite problems in my red barn, not in my house, not in my house. Well, we're going to correct that because there are professionals who can do that. So <clears throat> I share that, A, because it's true, B, because it makes a point. You could tell the same stories. You got problems. You got issues. And sometimes those problems are insurmountable to you. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the know-how. You don't have the tools. You don't have the resources to fix all the problems, right? We've all been there, whether it's your car, your house, yourself, your family, whatever. We got problems, physical problems, mental problems, social problems, financial problems, 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 problems. And here comes the Bible. Now, the Bible is concerned with our problems, true or false? True, absolutely. But you know, the Bible is primarily concerned with what it calls our primary problem. And that is a spiritual problem. The Bible says that the problem of all problems that you and I have, the one that matters most, the one that the scriptures teach is of eternal importance, is our spiritual problem. Now, what is that spiritual problem? It's a problem of holiness. It's a problem of righteousness. The problem is our lack of holiness, our lack of true righteousness, the absence of true righteousness in our life, that is our biggest problem. And there is only one solution to it, the author of Hebrews and the rest of the Bible says. So this morning, quite simply, a two-point sermon. Our big problem, God's big solution to it. And if you've never heard anything like this, I hope that these words will be sweet and good news to your ears. And if you already know this story, if you could come up and give this sermon, I pray that it would refresh you and encourage you. But we have a holiness problem. You and I, every one of us, every person, every human person has a righteousness problem, a holiness problem. That is that we lack it. And the problem is that God requires it. That's a problem. And it's insurmountable to your resources and to mine. Listen, this is what's been called the bad news. You know, the Bible, the gospel is the story of good news. But it's in the badness of the bad news that you can hear, believe, and understand the goodness of the good news. You won't know your need of the good news if you don't understand the bad news of our condition and what the scriptures say is true, not of some of us, but of every single one of us. Every person who has ever breathed breath has had a righteousness person save one. Save one. But we'll get to that. You and I, we are sinful we are unrighteous. We lack holiness the way that God defines it. That is our biggest problem. That is our righteousness 
problem. And this morning, let me illustrate this. Beyond the theoretical, beyond the theological, and there's no problem talking about sin um, and lostness theologically, even theoretically, but let's be practical for a moment. Let's pretend that I have to convince someone here that they're not holy and they're not righteous. I know that in my own life, I can't go to Walmart without being convinced that I am an unholy and unrighteous person. And I've, I've told you this, and I'm completely honest. It's because, well, there's no parking spots. Why are all these people here? They're in my way. And then you go in, and why are they moving so slow? And this is a 20-item per checkout, and we've got 40 items. And I'm not a righteous person. I'm not a holy person. So practically speaking, have, have you been able to measure yourself, not with each other, but with what God says is His holy, holy, holy character and nature? The heart of our God compared to our heart. We are, we are unrighteous. We are unholy. Walmart convinced me of that. The slowness of Walmart convinces me of that. Or maybe your Amazon package is late or it's lost in the mail. That's all it takes to convince you that you're not holy and you're not righteous. Or maybe you have slow internet. Your internet is lagging. That's all it takes to put you in a bad mood for the day. To get frustrated with your own children or your own employees. Or your tools break. You're in the middle of an insurmountable problem and, and Harbor Freight let you down with a tool that could not sustain the torque and the pressure that you put on it. And now Harbor Freight's 30 minutes away. That's all it takes to undo you. You're frustrated. You're mad. And if those things don't convince you, maybe your marriage does in the way that you treat your spouse or your children and the lack of patience or kindness or love or your laziness to correct them. Do those things show you that you have a holiness problem? If not, maybe it's your inner self, your inner thoughts, the inner life that only you know is thinking on, dwelling on, doing the things that you're doing internally. And if you're not married and you don't have children, maybe it's a roommate, that college roommate who won't leave the thermostat alone, who borrows your clothes without asking and then gets mustard on the blouse or the shirt. We, we can blow our lid. We get angry. Relationships can be broken. People don't talk to each other anymore. Because she ruined my blouse, my favorite blouse. Not my blouse, someone else's blouse. <laughs> and if that doesn't convict you, I don't know, maybe it's what you say about your in-laws or how you conduct yourself at work or even conduct it yourself in play. Pickleball, basketball, walking, running. Have you, have you discerned your own heart and been able to honestly conclude? Because here's how it should work. Okay, if I compare myself to those I pick out, eh, maybe I measure up okay. I'm a horrible person. That's not who we're to compare ourselves with. It's the holy God of the universe who says, be holy as I am holy. And every honest person would say, I am far from holy. I am far from righteous. I have no hope. As we heard in Isaiah chapter 6, woe to me. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, of an unclean heart, of an unclean life. That's our holiness problem, and everybody has it. We lack holiness. Psalm chapter 14, or the 14th Psalm, verses 2 and 3 say this. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who show wisdom, who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Is that your understanding of your own sinful heart, apart from the grace of God? that you are summarized in Psalm 14, as I am. Or Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Is that view of yourself? Is that your view of your family? Are you that needy because you understand you are that unrighteous, that you lack holiness? That should be the Christian's posture and view of himself, is that we are an unclean people and we deserve just judgment. The bad news is that God requires holiness. He requires holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, so in two chapters from now, we'll get into this in more detail. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 he says to these people, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So holiness is required, but none of us can produce it. None of us can manufacture the holiness that God requires. That's the badness of the bad news. What is required, you don't have. You and I cannot even produce it. Not on our best days, not with our best efforts. That's the biblical doctrine of sin and of humanity. And you know, perhaps you know, that the Old Testament, effort after effort after effort, God gave His people imagery to communicate this, words to teach this, to make sure the people, that their posture was always one that self-understood I am a ruined, sinful mess, and God is holy. The entire structure of the temple and the tabernacle, with exterior walls to it to keep Jerusalem and non-Jerusalem separated, and yet an outer court for the Gentiles, an inner court for Israel with a wash basin, an altar, the holy place, a dividing curtain, and the holy of holies on the other side of that curtain. The most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, etc. was found. Visibly, Israel grew up with these structures in place to communicate what? You don't just waltz into the presence of a holy God. There is caution. There is restriction. There are dividing walls. And all of that was physical imagery that people would conclude. I am a sinful worshiper. I worship a holy God. And access to Him is not taken for granted. Holiness is required. Washing is required. All of that 
was to testify to man's sin problem. And when I say man's sin problem, I mean it in the old school, old cultural context. Humanities. Man and woman and child. Everybody in the human race. The same sin problem. The same condition. Yahweh is holy and His people are not. That is the dilemma. That is the great problem that all of us have. And that imagery in the Old Testament and the teaching of Old Testament Scripture, it intended to keep it always before God's people. I'm a sinner. God is holy. My posture is one of reverence and awe. So they say that if you're making an effort to lose weight, some suggest that you get on the scale every day. Did you know that? Maybe you have lived in a season of losing some pounds. Maybe you've found it to be true or not found it to be true. But you know what? In my own life, I found it to be true. And I think it parallels this truth of what we're hearing. We kind of need something to be always before us to be conscious of reality, right? So we just lived through the holidays. Somebody quit getting on the scale, gained about 10 pounds, and I know you did too, so don't judge me. <laughs> but you get out of that rhythm of having something always before you that you're conscious and aware of, and you go right back to what you used to do, what you used to eat, right? I know that's personal. I hope you, you're tracking with me. That's why we need the holiness of God, what the Scriptures declare Him to be, and what the Scriptures declare us to be, to be always before us. Because we will forget. And we'll think that we can just mosey into God's presence. But He's always been very clear to His people. He and His presence are holy. Now the question, and children, pay attention to this. This would be good lunchtime conversation today. How many sins does it take to condemn, to banish a person from the presence of God and to make them unholy? How many sins? Is it a million? Or is it one? Do you understand that the Scriptures teach that a blemish makes us unholy? A blemished lamb was an unacceptable sacrifice. So here's the hard truth. And if you're bristling at this, listen carefully to Pastor Paul. Don't misquote him. Holiness is sinlessness by definition. God is holy. The Lord Jesus is holy. The Spirit is holy. Sinless. Add one sin and you now have something that is sinful. It's not sinless. And so what that does is that puts us all on the same page. Every one of us. How many sins does it take to make someone incapable of accessing the holy presence of God? The biblical answer is one. One versus a million, both defined as unholy. So all of us are on the same page. It doesn't matter what you have done, who you have been in a previous life. You and I are on the same page. We are not perfect in and of ourselves. Second part of the sermon to come. There is a perfection to be had, but it's not made by us. 
So if you have that posture of yourself, that you realize you are a person of unclean lips, just as Isaiah said, Woe to me, I am unclean, I cannot come into the presence of a holy God. That puts every one of us on the same page, and everybody who is out there, not in church, on the same page. Unless the goodness of the good news becomes true for you. And that's our second point. Well, not yet. i got a quote for you. R.C. Sproul says this. And I think I have it. Yes. R.C. Sproul says this. The late R.C. Sproul. Two things that every human being absolutely must come to understand are the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. These topics are difficult for people to face. And they go together. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of His majesty, purity, and holiness, then we are instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption. When that happens, we fly to grace. Because we recognize that there is no way that we could ever stand before God apart from grace. Now, that sounds a whole lot better to some. It's got to sound good to everybody because that's the only hope that a sinner ever has. And that's our second point this morning. We have a holy problem, but God provides a holy solution to that problem. And that is that the Lord's grace is to provide the necessary righteousness that His people could not produce on their own. So in the verses of chapter 10, in these first few verses... The author to Hebrews is trying to correct misunderstanding. Misunderstanding that had come into the life of Israel and the Hebrews in all that practice of sacrifice, in all those rituals, in all that law-keeping, some great mistakes had taken place in the heads, the thinking of the people. So in verse 1, in verses 4 and 11, he says that it is not by our law-keeping that we attain righteousness. And it is not by animal sacrifice that we attain righteousness. Listen again to those verses. First, in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never... By the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Then in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So do you hear his clarity in the sermon that he is preaching? He is saying you have a holiness problem and it has never in the history of God's people, it has never been addressed by our law keeping or by animal sacrifice. Instead, those things pointed elsewhere to something that would come to a reality that would one day come. Now, two quick quotes on this, and I don't have these on a slide, so listen carefully. On that subject, Lig Duncan says this, The Old Testament ceremonial system of sacrifices 
It did not result in the cleansing of sinners. It did not result in the forgiveness of sins. And it did not resolve the problem of a guilty conscience in the hearts of believers. What it did do was foreshadow the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the true Lamb, which covers all who believe in Him. Robert Rayburn says this, same subject. He said, the problem with the Old Testament sacrifices was that they could not make the worshiper perfect before God. An imperfect sacrifice cannot make an imperfect person perfect before a perfect God. And doesn't that make all the sense in the world when you think about that? The author of Hebrews is saying, why was there this endless bloodshed? Why are the priests so busy? Why so much work? Why so many animals kill? It's because it was pointing for the need of a true lamb who once and for all could put all bloodshed to an end. And that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us that we have. We have a holy solution, and it is God's grace in sending a lamb. After all, what was all that sacrifice about? Was it about the killing of an animal? Was it about the people participating in ritual? Listen to these few short passages. First from Psalm 40, verse 6. And again, the question is, what was it God was desiring in that whole system? Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14. Your new, this is the Lord speaking. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And then in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus, addressing the same kind of issue, says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so what we're told here is that the Lord was never about the ritual. He was never about the people being busy with a task. He wanted their hearts. And their hearts could be washed and cleansed and purchased by Christ and Christ alone. Think of it this way. Husband sees that Valentine's Day is coming up. Okay, she's going to want chocolate. She's going to want flowers. She's going to want a card, maybe even earrings. So I'll go to Walmart, stand in line, fight traffic, find the 97-cent card, the $4 box of chocolate, and maybe even some wilted flowers. I'll give her what she wants. He comes home. This is not a true story, by the way. I made this up. He comes home. He's like, well, here's your flowers, here's your card, here's your chocolate. And she shakes her head. Why? Because she's like, it was never about the chocolate. It was not about the card. It was not about the flowers. I just wanted you to be kind. I wanted you to be sincere. I wanted you to be in this. You see the difference? Israel was going through the motion. All right, I got to take a lamb. Let me find the cheapest, smallest, scrawniest one I got. Even though the scriptures say it's got to be unblemished. It has to be perfect. 
right, that's the cheapest lamb I have. I'll take that one. We'll kill that one. Their hearts weren't in it. It wasn't holy to the Lord. It was unholy. And all of it pointed that this has got to be remedied somehow, some way. It's got to come through another. There's got to be a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice, something that would have true and lasting effect so that the bloodshed could end once and for all. And that is what the author of Hebrews says that we have. He says that all of that Old Testament ritual, it was merely shadows pointing elsewhere to something more. And that something more was Jesus Himself. And don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Remember, after, he, after His resurrection, He's walking along the road to Emmaus, He's not able to be understood, detected, or seen by the human eye. And this passage in Luke 24 is given to us. It says, Then some of our companions went to the tomb to look for Jesus and found it was just as the woman had said. It was empty, and they did not see Jesus. And Jesus said to them as they walked along, How foolish you are! How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He then explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures, in all the Old Testament, concerning Himself. And boom, there's the light bulb that every pastor hopes would go off in the room. That that whole Old Testament was always about Jesus. Always, all of it, was painting a picture of our great desperate need and how God alone could fulfill it. And He did it. He did it in Jesus, His own Son. And He did it through Easter and His resurrection from the dead where He paid the price on the cross, not for His sins, but for our sins. That's the reality that He promises there were Old Testament shadows, and in the New Covenant comes the reality, the real thing in Jesus Christ. Very quickly, that atonement that has been accomplished. It is a vicarious atonement, which means it comes from a substitute. It comes outside of ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Someone else's blood must be shed for us. And in that way, Christ has been called the propitiation of our sins. And what that means is that just wrath of God that is right to come against unrighteousness, to come against unholiness, it came upon Jesus. He got the penalty for our unholiness, for our lack of righteousness. He took the punishment and He is the propitiation. The wrath has been removed because He absorbed it all. That's what we celebrate. That's the good news. That's how the bad news is put to death and the good news reigns. And in that death we find cleansing in the same way that Isaiah proclaimed. That that hot coal would come and sear the wound of our sin. And that this would be done once and for all. And that was the good news of the story the bloodshed comes to an end in the blood of Jesus. No more animals. No more sacrifices. One effective sacrifice. Finally come. Fully come in the person of Jesus.
And then the author in verses 11 and 12, I'll close basically with this. He made that comment about, there have been many standing priests. And he referenced this in a previous passage. How busy the priesthood was. And they were always standing, he says. Always busy. Always at work. But there's something different about the priesthood of Jesus. Did you catch what it is? It says that he's a seated priest. His work is done. It's finished. And the point of the author of Hebrews is to say, why would you walk away from the one sacrifice that truly has the power of atonement and go back to the shadows that pointed to the reality? Why would you leave the reality, abandon the reality to go back to the empty shadows? He's saying you're not thinking well. You don't understand. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We're reminded of this. If any of you does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. We have a holiness problem. And God provided a holy solution. One holy solution. No other options, no other choices. Jesus is the only perfect, holy, righteous sacrifice for sin. Now, I'll truly close with this. Heidelberg Catechism number 60. Listen to this. How is a sinner made right, righteous, with a holy God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and never having truly kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless without my deserving it at all. Out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ Himself since He was obedient for me. All I must do is to accept the gift of God with a believing heart. That's the good news of the gospel in an understandable form. Hear it for the first time or be refreshed by hearing it again. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer that we would know the gospel, that we would believe the gospel, that we would be changed by the gospel. Would you do that in us? Would you help us to acknowledge that it's not by our hands, not by anything they've ever done, that we can save our guilty souls. But it's through Christ, His perfect sacrifice. All of us are made to be your church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.